I do have to be honest, it's church service, so I have to tell you, I didn't expect to see all of you here this morning. <laughs> so kudos to you. How many of you are running on more than usual coffee or Mountain Dew or Red Bull? <laughs> right. I can tell. <laughs> My hand went straight up. So uh, yeah, I'm glad. However you got here, whatever it took to get you here, I'm glad you're here. There's something powerful when we gather together. If you're here for the first time, what a great Sunday to come for the first time. So we have a gift for you. It's not just because it's Time Change Sunday. We do have a gift for you. Just stop by the Connect table on your way out of here. Just drop your Connect card or just go by and say, my first time here, and they've got a little gift for you. And sorry, guys, there's no reward to the rest of you <laughs> for being here. You just <laughs> tell you what, though. Yes, there is. You go to Starbucks after service and tell them Brian said you can have a, an extra shot in your coffee, and they'll give it to you. Which Starbucks? Doesn't matter. Just tell many of them. Just, yeah. Don't call me after service if it doesn't work. So if you have been here for a while, you know what we've been doing since the first of the years. We've been studying through his story, the story of Jesus, going through the Gospels. There's a book called His Story. It's just the Gospels put in chronological order, storybook format, but it's the Gospels. We're looking at the teachings and the life and the miracles of Jesus. If you've been here for any of it, haven't you found Jesus to be one of the most refreshing people you've ever encountered? I mean, as I've read his story, and we're on chapter 10 this week, so we're a good way into it. Haven't you also found Jesus to be one of the most controversial, countercultural people you've ever encountered or read about? I mean, look at some of the things Jesus has done in his short three-and-a-half-year ministry on earth. He went places nobody else would go. He talked to people no one else would talk to. He ate with people no one else would sit down across the table from. He embraced and touched people that no one else would touch. He, uh, he picked people that no one else would choose to be with. He, his closest disciples, he chose people that, that no one else would have selected for that kind of a position. And Jesus was extraordinary. He, 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 he valued women like no one had ever valued women up to that point in history, maybe never since even. Jesus started all of that. He, uh, he just he valued people. Here's the thing that cracks me up, too. Jesus spoke with authority, not just to people. Jesus spoke with authority to diseases, to demons, to the weather, and they all submitted to him. I just find Jesus to be amazing, don't you? He's also very controversial. You know that if you've been reading his story, right? He's getting in trouble with some of the religious leaders of his day, and here's why. Jesus would say things that, that were so different than what anybody ever had heard before. He had this uncanny ability also to look right into your heart, and he knew what was there. And in many situations and circumstances and with many people, what they had on the inside was not the person that they projected to everyone else, including the religious leaders. Everybody thought these guys were amazing, religious, close-to-God people, and Jesus says, I see their heart, and it's not, which is no wonder why, as we've gotten further into his story, we hear the religious leaders of the Jewish people saying, we got to get rid of this guy. So as we get into chapter 10 this week, that's what we start seeing. Jesus begins this, um, it's, just an, it's an uphill climb. We're coming to the last week of Jesus' life right here. And, or you might say everything goes downhill from this point. So let's just get a little context. If you're unfamiliar with where we're at, we're about three, three and a half years into Jesus' teaching ministry. He's 33 years old. Just a little context, things that led up to what we're about to study today. So in John chapter 11, verse 7, we find this. This happened just a little bit before what we're going to study today. Jesus said to his disciples, let's go back down to Judea because Jesus had got word that his good friend Lazarus had died. So he's going to go back down to Judea where Lazarus was, but his disciples objected. Rabbi, only just a few days ago, people in Judea were trying to stone you, to kill you. You're going to go there again? You go down to verse 16. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and, and die with Jesus. I love Thomas. He's so sarcastic. 
So they get to Lazarus' home, where Lazarus had lived with his sister and, and other sister, Mary and Martha. And they get there, and Jesus performs a miracle. Lazarus has been dead four days when Jesus gets there, and Jesus raises him from the dead. And then this is what, what happened after that. Verse 47 of John chapter 11. Many of the people who were there with Mary, that's Lazarus' sister, believed in Jesus when they saw this happen, Lazarus being raised from the dead. Then the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do, they asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Okay, so let's just follow the logic here. Some of us are very logical people. Let's, so here's the, the major premise that these, these religious, religious leaders have, have said. Jesus is clearly doing miracles. They don't deny that. So minor premise, everyone's going to believe in him. They already are. So the conclusion they came to, we should also believe in him. We should also follow him. No, we're going to kill him. That's our solution because if we don't do something about him, we're going to lose our authority we're going to lose our place. The Romans are going to take away what authority we have. This, I don't know, maybe you've had this question, but as I've read his story, I've come back to this question over and over. How did the people who were closest to God, supposedly, the people who spent their entire lives studying the Bible, waiting for the Messiah to come, how could they blow it so badly when the Messiah, the, the Son of God, actually showed up? This is your one job. you got one thing to do. Recognize the Messiah when he comes. Point the people to him. You've studied this your whole life. He's here, and you refuse to believe in him. You refuse to follow him. What is up with that? You ever, you ever thought that? Get really frustrated with them. How could they get this so wrong? How could they so stubbornly refuse to see the truth? I want to share something with you that you've probably noticed about human nature. You may have even noticed it about yourself, and you don't like this about yourself. This is something that's wrong with all of us. There's a great book out there that explains it. It's called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. Right, see where I'm going with this? So it's a great book where the scholars, these scholars pull together research on different arenas of life where people adamantly say, I'm right, even when the evidence says you're wrong. Uh, one case in point, the, the first Innocence Project took place back in 1932. Somebody took 65 murder convictions and followed through and did further investigations to see if these people who were either executed or in prison for a life term, if they were really guilty or not. What they found in, in eight cases, the person they were accused of murdering was actually found alive. Someone said, it was one of the prosecutors or one of the prosecuting attorneys or one of the judges said, oh, it doesn't matter, that person's still guilty. What? You convicted him of murder and yet you will not admit that you, you goofed? He said, nope, it's, never, it's not possible in our criminal justice system to convict an innocent person. You know, fast forward, now we've got DNA, and we just know this happens a lot. But there's, there's people who just adamantly refuse to admit that they were wrong. Why is that? Here's a quote from the book. Self-justification. It's so powerful and deceptive. It allows people like us to convince ourselves that what, what they did at the time was the best thing they could have done. In fact, come to think of it, it was the right thing. There was nothing else I could have done. Actually, it was a brilliant solution to the problem. I was doing the best for the nation. Those jerks deserved what they got. Maybe they didn't kill the person, but they were guilty of something. Otherwise, we wouldn't have convicted them. I'm entitled to being right. And it's easy to talk about other people. It's harder when it's me. It's when it's you. You ever found yourself in an argument, and halfway through, you realize that you're wrong, but you keep arguing? You just don't want to admit it? No, you guys are, like, really not wanting to admit this right now. Just give me a little nod. I don't want to be the only person here, right? So I want you to hold on to that thought as we look at what the religious leaders continue to do to Jesus today. 
And I want you to be asking the question about yourself. Just be open. It's an okay place here to, to admit that you're wrong. Have I stubbornly in some area of my life refused to admit the truth that God's trying to show me? All right, so let's get back into chapter 10 of his story. If you don't have a copy of his story, but you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to Ma- Mark chapter 11, that's where we're going to be. Or if you're in his story, you may want to go ahead and go to page 182. Now, I've told you Mark 11. We're going to go back to chapter 10 just to pick up the context for today. Mark 10, 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of his group, and the disciples were filled with awe. The people following behind them were overwhelmed with fear. You say, well, why? Why were they in awe? Why were they in fear? Remember who's in Jerusalem and what they have planned for Jesus? The, the Jewish leaders. Why are we going to Jerusalem where they're trying to kill Jesus? This, this makes no sense. So they're in awe. They're in fear. So taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, guys, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man, me, will be betrayed to the leading priests and teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. So what we're getting into today, we, we usually study this on Palm Sunday, and I understand Palm Sunday is next week, not this week. There is so much that we have left to study in his story that we're just going to have to go ahead and talk about Palm Sunday this week. Or we call it the, the triumphant entry. So here's what I need from you, okay? We're going to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. I know you're tired. I know it's earlier than your body thinks it is, whatever. Let's just give me your attention. Take out the worship folder. Take some notes in there if that helps you, whatever. But let's study this together and see what happens because this is crucial to see what happens in these just two or three days of Jesus' life. So let's go ahead and start here. The first thing we're going to see as we get into chapter 11 of Mark is we get to watch the disciples carjack a colt. They, they, they steal a car of the first century equivalent. So let's go ahead and Mark chapter 11, verse 1. And as they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus, so this is a suburb of Jerusalem. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you're going to find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, if anyone asks you, what are you doing? What are, why, what are you doing this? The Lord, you just tell them the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and they found the colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway, just like Jesus said. As they untied it, some people standing there said, hey, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered Jesus just as he had told them to do, and the people let them go. Okay, so isn't this a little bit weird? You think, well, maybe that was okay in the first century. Nah, it was just about as weird back then as it would be today if you were to walk out of the theater and you go towards your car and there's a, like 12 guys surrounding your car with Duck Dynasty beards and, and a coat hanger. Like, what, what are you doing to my car? Uh, the Lord needs it. He's just going to borrow it. We'll bring it back. Would you be like, oh, okay, just, just wash it before you bring it back? That's exactly what happened. They borrow this colt and Jesus rides this colt that's never been ridden before into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphant entry, and you can go out and read on verse 7 on down what happens. This huge crowd shows up. People start yelling, Hosanna. They start cutting palm branches off the trees along the way. They start laying them down in front of Jesus as he's riding in on the colt. They're laying their own coats down in front of him so that he's got this like red carpet treatment all the way into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphant entry, but it didn't look like normal triumphal entries. The Roman army was phenomenal about this Maybe you've seen this on TV or in a movie before. When Roman armies had conquered someone and they rode back into Rome, they would have their own triumphant entry. 
and they would ride in on huge horses. There would be soldiers going ahead of them. They would be riding in these chariots, and it would be all pomp and circumstance. Behind them would be all these prisoners of war that they'd conquered, slaves. They'd all be coming in in chains. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, did he look like this powerful, triumphant ruler? He wasn't riding a huge white stallion. He's riding this little colt. It's a thing of peace. It was predicted in the Old Testament that that's how he would come into Jerusalem. He doesn't have slaves trailing behind him. He's got his disciples. Come on. Behind him, he's got formerly deaf people, formerly blind people, formerly demon-possessed people, formerly sick people healed, and they're walking in with him. And he's got children and old people yelling, Hosanna. This is what God does when he shows up. He's not here to condemn you. He's here to save you. Now, this is just a beautiful, people are going crazy in adoration for Jesus. Well, not everybody. This is where we get to see what happens next. So if you would, just hold your place in Mark and go a few pages over. You're going to go through Luke, and you're going to get to a book called John. John is one of Jesus' closest disciples, and he wrote something about this occasion. John chapter 12, verse 17 says this. This is all in his story also. It's page 194 in his story. It said, many in that crowd, the triumphant entry, had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That's the reason so many went out to meet him, because they'd heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone's gone after him. Now, what happens next is just wild. Mark, go back to Mark, Mark 11, 11. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. I want to put the picture in your mind. This is Sunday, okay? So they get into Jerusalem Sunday afternoon, and Jesus went to the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with his 12 disciples. It's just a suburb of Jerusalem, just a quick walk away. Here's what happens next. Jesus cleans house, okay? So he looked around carefully at everything Sunday afternoon. Anybody ever seen that show, Undercover Boss? Or if, you, if you're unfamiliar with it, the CEO of major corporations will go undercover in their own organization. They'll, they'll pretend like they're just a, a regular employee. They'll go work maybe at a fast food place, and then maybe they'll go work at the distribution center. What they'll do so nobody recognizes them as a CEO, what they'll do is they'll get a makeup artist to come in. They wear a wig. They wear makeup, so it just looks like another just ordinary, everyday Joe. So <laughs> what they'll do is that after the CEO has experienced all of what it's like in their own company from just a regular person's perspective, they will bring in the employees they worked with, and they will sit down, and they will take off the wig, and they'll take off the makeup, and everybody's like, oh, crud. That was my CEO that I was complaining in front of? Right here, what we have on Sunday afternoon when Jesus walked into the temple is undercover boss. And he's about to do something with the information that he gathered as he's there observing everything going on on Sunday afternoon at the temple. What did he do after this triumphant entry? Well, you go down to verse 15 and we find out. It says here, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area again. This is Monday morning. Monday morning, Jesus began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Stop. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. So you just picture the scene. Jesus is just, in East Tennessee, we'd say, He got buck. He's just flipping tables over, and he's telling people, you shall not pass, and you will not come through here, and he's driving animals out, and it's just crazy. It's chaos. You know what Jesus said at the end of it all? We'll find out how many of you know 80s movies. This house is clean. Any poltergeist people? Yeah. That's what he said. 
Now, I want you to hear me on this. Jesus never hurt anyone ever. But he was fierce. No one messed with him when he did this. First of all, just consider that he spent the first 30 years of his life as a blue-collar carpenter. He swung a hammer for a living. He wasn't a wimpy guy. I think there was something in his face, though, that just said, don't mess with him. And no wonder when he said, don't come through here with that stuff, nobody, they're like, okay. He says, leave, I'm leaving. Now, some of the people may have even applauded Jesus as he was doing this. You know why? This was just a scam, plain and simple. People were coming from all over the world to come to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God through the Passover. And when they got there, they maybe brought an animal with them to offer as a sacrifice. They would get to the temple and they would be told, oh, there's a defect with your animal. You can't offer this animal as a sacrifice. You need to buy one of the temple animals. And of course, the animal was marked up hugely. It wasn't, you know, it was just a huge ripoff. Oh, you want to make an offering of money to the Lord? Well, you can't use your currency. You have to use temple currency. And the exchange rate, again, was just horrible. You got to turn in your money and get temple money to make an offering to God. It, it was just a huge ripoff. It was a huge scam. Guess who was running this little Ponzi scheme? Pharisees, the religious leaders. It was more like the mafia than, than religious worship and activity. And Jesus gets right in the middle of it and he calls it what it is. You, you've turned a place of worship into a, a place of making. You're robbing people who have come to worship God. And so he's rightly so incensed and he's flipping all these tables over. And the, the thing, this is just really what sealed the deal for Jesus with the religious leaders. He's come in on their turf, on their territory. He's invading their place and their space. And he's messing with business. Jesus is bad for business now. He's not just like winning the people over with his miracles. He's actually messing with their income. So it's no surprise what they do next. Mark eleven eighteen. When the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. All right, so let's go to the next day, Tuesday. So he cleared the temple on, on Monday. On Tuesday, Jesus gets called on the carpet. All right, so verse 27. Again, they entered Jerusalem Tuesday. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, teachers of the religious law, and the elders came up to him and they demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? You know, flipping tables and driving people out. Who gave you the right to do them? Again, Jesus on their home turf. All three branches of the religious leadership are there. You've got the, you've got the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. You've got the chief priests. They're like the Sadducees. You've got the Pharisees. You've got the religious leaders. So they're all there. And they're just as interested as the people were as to why Jesus is doing this, but for a different reason. Why are you messing up our stuff? What gives you the right to do any of this? Now, if, if you think back several weeks ago, if you were here for the first chapters of his story, do you remember a Roman centurion came to Jesus and asked him for help? Do you remember that? He actually didn't even come himself. He sent people on his behalf. What, what was the problem that he was asking Jesus for help with? Yeah, he had a, a servant who was sick and dying, and he'd heard about Jesus in the city of Capernaum where he was stationed, this miracle worker. So he asked Jesus to help him. And then he sent word, and he said, Jesus, I don't even have the, I don't have the right to ask you to come into my home, but I recognize the kind of authority that you've got. I recognize that you just say the word and things happen. I understand authority. I'm a centurion. I've got 100-some men under me that report to me. I've got superior officers. I do what they say. I understand authority. Jesus, you've got authority. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus was like, blown away. He said, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. This is a Gentile, a Roman. He didn't even grow up learning about God. He's come to God later in life, and he gets it. 
just, I'm just blown away by this level of faith. He just understands the authority that I've got. Now Jesus is standing in front of the religious leaders of Jerusalem, the people who are supposedly closest to God, and they don't understand the authority that Jesus has. It's quite a contrast. I don't think that they didn't recognize it. They just didn't want to submit to it. Let me just push pause for a second here. because I want to talk to us. I've learned in my life that until I give up that stubborn, I'm going to do it my way, I'll figure it out myself, I'm, you know, I, I don't need anybody's help, including God's, until I give that up, things don't work real well in my life. And I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be the same for you. Until you yield to God and submit to his authority and ask for his help, things are going to be much more difficult in your life than they have to be. It, it's humility where God does his best work. So when you humble yourself before God, he can do extraordinary things in your life, but not so much until you ask him. Because he's not going to force his way into your life. Think about this. You ever got up in the morning and like misbuttoned your buttons? And then you spend the whole day walking around with like your shirt like this, and nobody tells you. <laughs> you look like a dork all day. I will literally do this. I don't know maybe if you do this or not. I will start at the top button and work my way down because I don't want to be that guy. I don't even button the top button, but I start there and then I... That's the same way with God. So let me use this as an analogy. You know the Ten Commandments? You heard of that? Maybe you don't even know what the Ten Commandments are, any of them, but you probably know the first one. What, do you, what is the first of all the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. God first. It's like the top button. You, you get that first command right, all the other buttons just line up. And it's extraordinary because you have these men who've spent their entire life studying God's word, God's law, and the first one wrong. God shows up and they don't honor him and everything else is a failure after that so jesus says here i am and the guys are asking him by what authority are you doing all this stuff and it, it's, it's not only that jesus came on their home turf he came on their home turf on super bowl weekend you got hundreds of thousands if not a million or more people coming into jerusalem from all over the world for passover the Romans are watching to see if the Jewish leaders can handle the crowds or do they have to step in and take over. And if the Romans step in and take over, we've seen what happens when they do that. They kill people. So we know that just from extra uh, his, history sources outside the Bible. So the Romans are watching very carefully. The Jewish leaders know that. Plus, Jesus is bad for business. They're, they're getting their profits gouged into by what Jesus is doing. And so they're really keen to get Jesus off their back. So they're going to say, Jesus... By what authority you're doing this? Jesus says, well, let's, let's have a little talk here. It's time for another come to Jesus meeting. Jesus tells it like it is, verse 29. Jesus says, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Answer me. John, who's John? John the baptizer, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the one who baptized Jesus. In, in a good rabbinical debate, what, what people will often do, what the leaders would do, is they would answer a question with a question. You ever have that experience? Teenage girls are really good at that, by the way. Or, so I'm told. Not that I would know that from experience. <coughs> so Jesus is asking a question of them, and it's clear here who's going to drive this discussion now. Let me ask you a question. And now the hunters become the hunted. So they huddle up, and they're like, okay, what are we going to do? Because here's the dilemma they're in. 
John the Baptist has now been killed by King Herod, and the people are incredibly angry about this. They loved John. They, they thought John was the greatest thing. They thought he was a prophet from God. So the religious leaders are in a dilemma because Jesus said, by whose authority did he do what he did? They've got to answer that. So the dilemma they're in is if they say that John was from God, Jesus is going to say, I'm under the same authority John was under. If they say he's from the people... You know, I mean, if they say he's from just human sources, then the people are going to be like, no, he was a prophet from God. They're going to be angry at them. So verse 31, the religious leaders are huddled up. They're whispering. They're throwing back the alternatives back and forth. Like, you say he's from God. No, we can't say that. Well, he's human. No, we can't say that. So what they come back with is, we don't know. Really, that's the best you can do. Where did John get his authority to baptize? We don't know. I don't know. And Jesus doesn't come back with, well, I don't know either. He doesn't do that. He knows that they actually know that John came from God. They just won't admit it. They're hard-hearted. They're not looking for answers. They're not looking for the truth. They're standing in the presence of truth, and they won't admit it. So they're not going to admit it now. So Jesus says in Mark eleven thirty-three, okay, you won't tell me? Then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. What he's saying is, fine, if, if you can't bring yourself to admit in your stubborn heart is what is true and you know to be true, then I'm wasting my breath, and nothing that I say right now is going to change your mind. It's only going to make things worse. You know, that, that is a, uh, a very dangerous place to be in your life when in your heart of hearts you know you're wrong, but you won't admit it. When you know that God is speaking to you about something and you just won't do it, that you won't listen, and then the voice gets quieter and you think, well, I guess God changed his mind. It's no, you just learned to ignore God. It's a very dangerous place to be. It would have been such a such a different scenario had the religious leaders said, you know what, we are wrong. We need to repent. We need to submit to Jesus, but they refused to do that. They ultimately ended up killing him out of their hard-heartedness. And you know, that same thing that will harden your relationship with God will harden your relationship with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with people that you love. That inability to say, I was wrong, and I admit it, and I need to change. Any, any NASCAR fans here? Where are NASCAR? Like all, all two of you. Robert Rice and nobody else wants to admit it. <laughs> Anybody heard of Daryl Waltrip? Maybe if you've not heard of NASCAR, you've heard of Right, he's a spokesperson for, for NASCAR for many years now. Daryl used to say as a race car driver, you had to use all of your senses when you're driving that car. You would sm smell something was not quite right with the engine or you would hear something, you'd feel something coming to you through the chassis. You just used all of your senses as you drove the car. And he said, sometimes I would just get the sense that something was wrong and I'd pull into the pit area, tell the pit chief, there's just something wrong, you need to pull the engine. And he said, sometimes they would trust me and they would pull the engine and they'd look and sure enough, there was something, there's a rod about to go or something wrong with the camshaft, something. But he said, there were often times where people just did not believe me when I said something was wrong. And what ended up having to happen was the car had to wreck or had to break down before they would believe me, which usually meant somebody got hurt. And it always cost a lot of money. I don't want you to have to wreck spiritually or literally before you come to realize there's some things in your life that God wants to talk with you about that need to change. I, I, I want to ask you, what is it costing you to ignore the voice of God in your life? And what could you do about it today to change that? This is not a place where anybody's going to judge you. We accept each other. Maybe the, the best thing you could do today is have a, a conversation with God where you just very openly say, look, I'm, I'm willing to change. I don't even know if I can change, but I need some help here. I want you to 
I want you to experience what it's truly like to have God go to work in your life because when you realize that God is for you, not against you, when you feel the grace of God in your life and the love that he has, the compassion he has for you, when you realize that what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, he's still doing for people every day, that is powerful. And I want you to experience that. Now, these guys refused to do that. And it took them to a very dark place. And we're going to uncover that over the next two weeks in his story. But the story doesn't end there. Ultimately, Jesus won. And he still wins now. I want to submit to that guy. I want him to be leader of my life. I want him to be leader of your life. That's like the purpose of our church. We're here to connect people to God and to each other through Jesus because he's the only person I've ever seen, experienced, met, read about in my life who has this kind of ability to change people's lives. And I want you to have that. So... You know, if something that I'm saying resonates with you, I'd be happy to talk with you after service or, or one of anybody here who's a leader would be happy to talk with you. Just come find me and, and let's talk more about what your next steps need to be. But what I would invite you to do is not to just kind of close the shutters and just kind of hope this goes away. If, if God's tugging at your heart, do something with it. Could I ask you to pray with me right now? Father, thank you for speaking to us so clearly. I'm thankful that Jesus persisted in his reaching out to people who were far away from you, including people like this who are so hard-hearted. pray that we would never be that hard-hearted, that we would just submit to you, ask for your help, experience the love that you have for us. God, please be working in our hearts today. We, just, we pray this every Sunday. You know that. We pray that lives would be changed here, and I'm asking you to do that today for us. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.